A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. On your airwaves, in your area code, on the plane, on the train, simply everywhere you want to be. I am Brandon Scoopy Robinson. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Scoop. B, Instagram scoop underscore B, Snapchat scoop underscore B, and make sure that you subscribe to the Scoop B Radio podcast, which is available at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn app, Stitcher app, or by simply visiting scoopbradio.com. Scoopbradio.com has been breaking stories, having interviews with people you want to hear, and the numbers support it. 2.5 million downloads in 2017, 3 million in 2018. So that means we're only going up all the way up. And on the line right now is a guy who's pretty accomplished, uh, five-time NBA All-Star, All-NBA First Team, two-time All-NBA Second Team, NCAA, or rather College Basketball Hall of Fame. It's none other than my main man, Marcus Johnson. What's going on, sir? Everything is good, man. Life is good. And, uh, you know, just enjoying uh, enjoying my basketball, working for these Milwaukee Bucks and watching this exciting young team. And life is good, man. I can't complain. You know you be a modest Emmy Award-winning Bucks TV analyst. Sir, Milwaukee is doing numbers this year. What's the secret? <laughs> uh, the secret is that, you know, that Matthew Delapatova was the last player to wear number eight. <laughs> he, he was traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers for George Hill. And Jason Smith, he and Don Henson, but uh, he will be the last person to ever wear number eight again. Let me just put it that way. My number's going up uh, into the Raptors, first number to go up into the new venue, Fiserv Forum, which is just a, a beautiful, beautiful edifice that uh, management has uh, built here in Milwaukee. But uh, that's the exciting news for me, man, is that uh, after, you know, 30-plus years of having last played here, maybe closer to 40, that uh, my number's getting retired, and uh, I'm just really thrilled, excited, and, and just just uh, emotionally moved by the gesture by the Bucks. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I think I'm the ninth player in team history to have that done, and I'm sure there are other guys after me that will have it done at some point because there's been some guys who – were major contributors, but uh, no, it, it's uh, it's been a long time coming, man. And uh, just again, grateful to to ownership and Peter Fagan, the team president, and 
everybody involved in, in, in the decision. Well deserving. I'm just preparing for this interview. Um, in your rookie year, you averaged 19.5 points per game on 52.2% shooting. What was in the water in Milwaukee? It's funny, man, because I uh, looked at the NBA game like it was almost easier than the college game just because of the wide-open style of play, the uh, the ability to get out and finish in transition, uh, the ability to, to be a lot more of an effective offensive rebounder. I think I'm the all-time leading offensive rebounder still in Milwaukee Bucks history, having played here uh, seven years. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I got a kind of a taste of what was to come in a in an all-star game uh, for charity put on by the great Willie Knowles, who just died a couple of couple of weeks about a month ago. Uh, he he was my former agent, number another UCLA Bruin. But uh, Willie Knowles had had games uh, that that benefited his Soulville Foundation for underprivileged youth in L.A. And I went against Dr. J and some great pros, Gus Williams and guys like that, in a three-game series, one in Los Angeles, two in Hawaii. I probably averaged 30 a game in those three mm-hmm. games, going against going against the pros for the first time as they uh, just graduated college seniors. So I knew coming in that I could play and play effectively on the NBA level. And for those who are listening, more specifically, uh, you uh, like you said led the Bucks in all time uh, in offensive rebounds. You had 1,468. Um, you also during your time with the Bucks uh, averaged 1.3 steals and 0.8 blocks per game. And um, again, just looking at video and looking at the things um, that you did, you were a lethal scorer, uh, often beating defenders in a variety of ways. You, you had smooth dribble moves, uh, a catch-and-shoot stroke, and you were able to score and get the ball uh, and get to the line at will. Uh, you did this before the three-point shot existed. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you look at my three-point percentage, and it's, and it's woeful. I mean, it's like 15, 16, 12, something crazy. But at that time, there was no three-point shot in existence. When I first came in in 77, I think the three-point line came in in about 1979. And I was just thinking about that because I get asked this question a lot. Uh, we didn't think about shooting threes. The small forwards of, of my era, myself, Alex English, Bernard King, guys like that, we were so good at getting to that mid-range area uh, to score and then to get our shot off and get separation and, and, to, and to knock down you know, between 50, 55% of those shots contested or uncontested. If I got to my spot, you know, 15 to 18 feet from the basket, I knew it was money. And so there was no desire, need, or proclivity to to, to step back uh, beyond the three-point line and shoot 25-foot jump shots when I could get to 17 feet uh, and and, and be an effective scorer in the league. So uh, and I always make the point of saying that, that if, that shot had been emphasized back in those days. We would have worked on those uh, those skills, uh, perfected those skills to the best of our abilities. And I'm I'm real confident I could have shot 37, 38, maybe even 40 percent from the three point line in a good year. But there was just no reason. I never ever worked on drills, uh, and I had my own uh, I had my own conditioning and, and skill development coach. One of the first guys to do so, maybe the first guy to do so back in those days, uh, a brother by the name of Malik Mansour. Out of mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and we never ever worked on on three point shooting, and it was just kind of an afterthought 
when the shot became available either the end of the quarter, half, or, or shot clock when I would have to shoot that shot in the game. So uh, that's an interesting observation by you. You're right, three-point shooting was not, not something that uh, was a big deal back in those days. A follow-up to that, uh, when you you being in the broadcasting booth and looking at today's NBA, what do you think when you see everybody hoisting threes? You see Tom Ford hoisting threes, small forwards hoisting threes, Simmons hoisting threes. I mean, you have Rick Lopez in Milwaukee. I covered him when he was in Brooklyn and saw how he extended his shot. It's it's like Regina Sokowskis on steroids because he's got he, he, he's extending his shooting. When you look at today's NBA and you see bigger men shooting, what do you think? You know, it's, it's it's interesting. The Houston Rockets, I think, just had a game recently where they shot 73s in a game, and that's just that's just nuts. I mean, and it's almost becoming like video arcade basketball where scoring is just, I don't want to say too easy because I understand the, the amount of work and, and discipline and, and, and dedication that these guys like a James Harden puts into it. But when you can go out and, and, and average – the kind of points that he's averaging, uh, uh, you know, at first you got to give these guys respect. But Lopez didn't shoot threes his first seven years in the league. The last two or three years he started to shoot more of them. His final season in Brooklyn, his last year in L.A., Los, uh, Los Angeles last year. And so I give credit where credit is due in terms of the hard work that it takes to expand your range, like a Mark Gasol, same thing with him. But at the same time, the game – has become somewhat predictable in terms of what teams are looking to do offensively. There's been so much emphasis, and I don't blame the coaches and and the rules committee because you want to make the game uh, a game that 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 can be attractive to the younger generation. And and I I think it kind of mirrors what these youngsters are doing when they play the video games or the Xboxes or on the or the NBA 2000s or whatever it is, 2K, whatever it okay. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know and so, so it's just, I think it's, it's a similar kind of a fascination for them to, to not only play, but now to be able to see that stuff played out by guys in real time and live motion and doing some of the things they're doing on, on, on video games. Guys are doing it in games right now, so uh, it's an interesting correlation. I, I'm not an old school, you know, get off my lawn type of dude, but <laughs> it, it is becoming a little bit monotonous to a point. You know what I'm saying? Just to a point when there's just so many. We went from the, one of the worst teams in, in, in three point attempts last year, about 25 a game, to the second most, almost 40 a game this year. And it's helped us. And we're one of the most successful teams in the league. The Milwaukee Bucks are doing so. So, so it's smart coaching, but in terms of aesthetically pleasing for me as an old school guy, um, I, I'm kind of still trying to figure out. My jury is out. I don't know whether I like it, don't like it. It's just that it's that an interesting point right now in my mind, the way the game is played offensively. Here's a wild card question. If the three-point shot didn't exist in the NBA, do you think the NBA would be playing the way it's playing right now? Well, uh no, because if the three-point shot didn't exist in the NBA, teams would uh, protect the basket uh, with a lot more consistency and, 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 and a lot more vigorously. And so the, the ability for uh, Giannis and Kumpo to do some of the stuff he does in terms of weaving and winding and zero stepping his way in for these dunks that he's able to get off, I just don't know if it would be there. I mean, if, if I if, if I got to give up two points, it's not going to be Giannis in the paint 
scoring two points against me. It's going to be somebody else having to knock down an 18, 19-footer with a hand in their face. It would be a different-looking game. It wouldn't be as exciting. So from that standpoint, the three-point shot is necessary. I just don't know if it's, if it's not time to maybe think about moving that line back a little bit just because guys have become so good. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's tough to say where to move it back from. You look at a Steph Curry and, and James Harden and guys like that. I mean, look Lopez. I mean, they're shooting thirty foot bombs right now. So, you know, where do you, where, where, you know, where do you make the adjustment? It's kind of hard to say. Scoopy Radio on the line with Marcus Johnson. Subscribe to Scoopy Radio podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher at Marcus Johnson. Uh, let us know that he, his number eight jersey, will be going into the rafters. Uh, pretty excited, sir. Got to tell you. When I look at players, past or present, that have the sharpest hairlines in the NBA, you, you, you fall into the top three. You ready for this list for me? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Jawan Howard, Jalen Rose, and you. How do you keep it so fresh? <laughs> oh, man, you know, I, I, I got a great, great uh, – Great barber here in in in, in, in Milwaukee, Ebony uh, too, my band Dietrich King. But you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it doesn't happen by yeah. I don't fall out of bed with with everything kind of staying fresh like that. It takes it takes some diligence, some hard work. But I appreciate the uh, the good company that you placed me in. Yes, sir. You, now, to go back a little bit, you you were talking about the small forward position. Um, I have. I had Dr. J. Julius Irving on the Scoopy Radio podcast, uh, and, and he talked about comparison. And he said when he played in the league, Connie Hawkins was a guy uh, that he, people often made the comparison game with. Um, and, and when you look at today's NBA game, uh, many people uh, are doing the comparison game, particularly as it relates to LeBron and Michael Jordan. I'm not going to get you in trouble, but my question to you is this. You had to go toe-to-toe with, the, with Dr. J. You're now in the, in the broadcast booth channeling your past and channeling your present. Who in the NBA most reminds you of Dr. J? Wow. You know, it's funny that you asked that because I was watching our, our guy, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, play in a game recently uh, against the Memphis Grizzlies, and he just made a a real spur-of-the-moment, uh, improvisational, body control uh, so, so the Statue of Liberty, ball in one hand, palm in the basketball like it's a grapefruit, and then extended and then a, a, wrist, a flip of the wrist, finger rolls softly into the net. That reminded me so much of Julius when he played. And so if there was one guy, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else, because you got the great leapers, Aaron Gordon and, and people like that, but those are mostly two-foot jumpers like Dominique Wilkins used to be. In terms of guys who have – the thing about Dr. J, the, the reason why guys my age, and Doc is like six years older than me, so when I was 15, 16, he was bursting onto the scene with the Virginia Squires on the ABA game of the week on CBS, 10 o'clock Saturday mornings in Los Angeles. I woke up every Saturday early to be able to catch him in action. But the thing about him was his ability to take it off the glass at the defensive end, push it up the floor, and then improvise on his way to the basket, and it usually wound up with him dunking in somebody's face. Giannis is the one guy that can do that on a consistent basis. So, uh, And I'm not being a homer with this, but, but, but I, I thought about it watching Giannis the other night when he did this move against the Memphis Grizzlies. He's got those kinds of improvisational instincts 
with the hands. You get, you, you know, I wanted to be Dr. J, but I got these crooked little fingers that, that are hereditary in my family, so I can't <laughs> palm the basketball like Dr. J. Giannis has got the hands of Dr. J, the athleticism of Dr. J, and he's about five inches taller at 6'11", than Dr. J was. So I think Giannis and Del Pupo would be, in my mind, the Dr. J for the new millennium. Huh. That's interesting because when I look at Giannis, I, I, I definitely see uh, the athleticism. I see the, the aerial assault. Um, I see just being young and, and, and entertaining and doesn't have to take many steps to get to the rim. But then I also see a more improved like he actually can run an offense, right? When, now I wasn't born yet. When you looked at Dr. J, was he controlling offense? Was he strictly a, a pure small forward? Because I feel like Larry Bird changed the game as a, as a playmaking uh, small forward, and then obviously you had Scottie Pippen who got coined with the phrase point forward. Where is Dr. J's mold in all of this? Did, did he run an offense like that? What, is that the edge that Giannis has? Yeah, well, a couple of points to that. The, 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 look, the term point forward was a term that I created back in 1984. We're playing against the New Jersey Nets in the playoffs, uh, NBA playoffs, 1984. They had uh, Michael Ray Richardson and a guy by the name of Darwin Cook pressing up mm-hmm. on our guards. We had like two or three point guards, Tiny Archibald, uh, a couple other point guards who were injured. So um, uh, Mike Dunleavy Sr. was the guy that had to try and bring the ball up under pressure. Darwin Cook, Michael Ray Richardson, they were ripping him right and left. Don Nelson decided to initiate the offense through me as the small forward. Now, it wasn't like I was, you know, dishing out a bunch of assists, but I just bring the ball up against the Buck Williams who couldn't who couldn't uh, steal it from me, and mm-hmm. I would initiate the offense. And so when Don Nelson set that up in practice before game three and showed me how he wanted me to dribble the ball to certain positions on the floor to initiate the offense, whatever play we're running. I told Don Nelson, so instead of a point guard, I'm like a point forward. He's like, yeah, well, yeah, point forward. I I like that. Yeah, you're you're my point forward. So that term came from my mouth the first time it was ever uttered on NBA level. Now, to your point, Dr. J, if you watch old footage of him, APA footage, you see him pushing the ball up the floor. You look at his numbers. And I don't know him off the top of my head, but I would venture to guess in those ABA days with the New Jersey Nets, when he was really in his prime at 24, 25, 26 years old, he was probably averaging five, six, seven assists a game. Uh, and, and that's, and, and, and that's from, from the playmaking ability of pushing it coast to coast. Uh, not a great ball handler, but good enough to get to where he wanted to get. And so, you know, we talked about Larry Bird and some of these other guys. Rick Barry was really the kind of the first guy with the Golden State Warriors back in 1975 that mm-hmm. really ran an offense from the forward position. So he'd be kind of the original point forward. And we go back even further than that. Maurice Stokes, you look at some old footage of him, mm-hmm. and you'll see, you know, the consummate kind of 6'8", 270-pound point forward. But, yeah, Dr. J, I mean, I look, I'd love to look up some numbers assist-wise because he he was a, a very underrated passer in transition in particular. So, and and he's the guy that I watched pattern my game after as a fifteen sixteen year old, and that's when I started to get it off the glass and in high school and and push it coast to coast and weave in and out and throw no look passes and the whole shot. But that was based on watching Doctor J play. So I'm very comfortable saying that that uh, you know he had that style of play where he could initiate the offense. 
Dr. J was my parents' generation's Michael Jordan. When you look at Dr. J and my parents' generation, and I look at Michael Jordan, it seems like they're the gold standard. People judge LeBron James the same way. Um, do you think that when you were coming up or even in your generation, did people hold Michael to the same standard in comparison to Dr. J as people hold LeBron to Michael Jordan as the gold standard? What are the differences in your mind? Well, you, when you're talking Michael Jordan, you see, now it's, he's a whole different animal. And, and, I, and I say that with nothing but, you know, but respect and reverence for his game because of the six championships. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking three, spit out two for baseball, come back, three more. And, and just this ability to get his team over the top. Now, LeBron James, eight straight NBA finals or whatever it is, that, that's an amazing accomplishment, especially considering uh, the talent level of the Cleveland Cavaliers when he got to that team, uh, you know, two or three years ago. But, but Jordan, you know, that, that's where I think he is, is a little bit above the other people out there. Now, I love LeBron. I think talent-wise, in terms of a physical specimen, 6'8", 6'9", and 250, 260, whatever he is, and to be able to move and handle. When I first saw him, he was in high school. They came out to play Westchester High School. He was guarded by Trevor Ariza, one of the mm-hmm. best defensive players, even at that time at the fourth position. And LeBron dropped like 52 on Westchester High School. You know, and, then, and when I saw him pushing about the floor with his left hand and in and out dribbles with his left hand, throwing uh, one-handed passes off the dribble with his left hand, that's when you knew, or at least I did, that he was a special player that was going to be uh, you know, that was destined for greatness and superstardom. But the thing about Michael, I mean, Michael to me is the gold standard just because not only his ability to win and the championships, but you think about Michael in clutch situations, and to me, few guys uh, measure up to Michael's ability in the clutch to deliver game-winning jumpers with a hand in his face. I'm talking Elo, Russell, whomever it is, Michael has enough on his resume in terms of game-winners in the playoffs where he deserves to be, I think, considered just a little bit above the rest of the, of the, of the forwards and guards out there. I think in the last 20 years, me personally, I think the only other people when you talk about clutch that can uh, you could mention a step below is Wade or Kobe. Yeah, Kobe would be one, and uh, D. Wade, uh, I, absolutely. And Kobe's not not far behind, but, but it's interesting for me because, and I, and I think about this a lot in terms of our culture, man, because – Kobe talks about it openly, about how when he was in Italy, uh, his grandmother would send him the, the Michael Jordan tapes, and he would send mm-hmm. tapes. And, and so Kobe's kind of, you know, kind of a Michael Jordan-like type player. And, 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 and believe me, he's, you know, he's done his own thing. It's kind of like sampling in the rap music when, you you know, you got, you know, you got Gold Digger and you got the Ray Charles, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it, and it kind of connects generations. But but I think Michael's to me is the original, and Kobe is like that that sample who's really close to being uh, just as good, but not quite. And right. uh, but yeah, but but Kobe's ability in the clutch, I think, would be probably second. Now now I'm gonna go back a little further than that because now that I think about growing up in Los Angeles, Mr. Clutch was Jerry West. And, and and his ability to knock down game winners when I was growing up, I still haven't seen anybody that really compares to that. And that's me watching uh, Jerry West 41 road games back in those days and seeing him 10 times a year 
get game winners or shots that send games into overtime at the buzzer. And so, but 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 in terms of modern day basketball players from the from the let's say '90s on, uh, Kobe would be the guy that fit that that that, that bill next to Michael Jordan. You mentioned uh, Los Angeles, obviously you growing up there, um, and you know going to UCLA. Um, I had Gary Vitti, uh, 32 year and retired athletic head athletic trainer with the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, recently on the Scoopy Radio podcast, and he said, in quote, I believe that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not only the best basketball player that ever played the game, I can make an argument that he was the greatest athlete to ever walk on the planet. What do you remember about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Well, you know, I just remember, again, growing up in Los Angeles, the hoopla surrounding Kareem when he, when he signed with UCLA, coming out of Power Memorial High School, and then that got even greater when the freshman team at UCLA with Kareem and Lucius Allen and some other guys, Lynn Shackelford, Mike Nielsen type guys you never heard of, but they beat the UCLA varsity by like 20. And the UCLA varsity was uh, coming off a national championship, top-rated team in the country uh, that year, 1966, I believe was the year. But Kareem and the freshman team, thank them. And then Kareem is eligible to play varsity his sophomore year, I think 1967. His first game, I don't know, it was a scheduling quirk. I don't know how it wound up this way, but his first game of the year was against USC at Pilot Pavilion, and he dropped 56 points on USC in mm. his first game. So this was, you know, I'm, so I'm all of 10, 11 years old, basketball lover. My dad's a coach. I'm just, you know, I'm just you know, I'm just, you know, I'm, 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 I'm taking in anything and everything I can on basketball. So even to see, whenever you saw a basketball game on TV, it was a special event back in those days. And to watch Kareem drop 56, you felt like you were watching just this, this once-in-a-generation type of a player. And I grew up on Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell and those old matchups back in the 60s when they go at each other. But Kareem's finesse, his, his mobility, his gracefulness for a guy – Seven feet. A guy seven feet in those days was was usually a big lumbering, male counts Daryl Imhoff type dude that you know a Ray Felix type guy that that was uh, limited in, in 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 terms of fluidity and and gracefulness. Kareem was seven two and played like he was six two, and he was just beautiful to watch. When I look at your body of work, it reminds me of Grant Hill because you both were such great collegiate basketball players. Um, Grant had did his thing in Duke. You did your thing at UCLA. I feel as though your numbers support um, Hall of Fame numbers. Why do you think that people are not considering you a Hall of Famer and you haven't been inducted? Well, here's the thing. I mean, you, you look at some of the websites that are devoted to analytics, win shares, and, and value over replacement player, and, and all those kinds of, of advanced metrics. And and I always make the cut. It's always he belongs in the Hall of Fame. I think the fact that my career was cut short uh, due to injury, hurt my neck uh, going into my 10th year, so that probably robbed me out of a good five to 7,000 points. So instead of 14,000 or just below, I would wound up closer to 20, which have been a – a good Hall of Fame number. The other point that people really don't realize is that my second year in the league, 
averaged 25.6 or something like that. First team all pro, uh, shot 55% from the field. Now, you look at my third year, that number drops to 20, 21 points a game. And the reason it dropped was because my coach, Don Nelson, brought me to his office before my third year, and we had a conversation that went something like this. He's like, MJ, what do you think you can average this year? Well, Nelly, I worked really hard on my jump shot. I worked on my conditioning. Uh, I kind of got this thing going with George Gervin about who's going to lead the league in scoring. I think I can average 30 and still shoot about 55% from the field. He's like, yeah, I believe that you can. But listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to average about 20, 21 points a game, about seven rebounds a game, play good defense, and let's have a more balanced team than a team with you shooting 18, 19, 20 times a game, you know, get up 14, 15 shots a game, and let's spread the wealth around a little bit. And let Brian Winters, let Sidney Moncrief, let Junior Bridgman uh, kind of have this balanced scoring basketball team. So, so, I went on, so I went with that. I mean, I, did, I went with it reluctantly. I mean, it was like I, t- I tried to make my case. Look, I'm shooting 55%. I should be getting more shots, not less shots. Yeah, I understand that, but, you know, this is what I want you to do. And so being the son of a coach and having great coaches all my life, Willie Weston, Crenshaw, my dad, Jeff, uh, John Whitten at UCLA, when a coach mm-hmm. asked me to do something, eventually I'm going to do it. Inevitably I'm going to do it. And that's why my numbers drop off, uh, you know, in, 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 a, in a major way from that second year to my third year. And my point being, so now if I would have continued on the trajectory scoring that I could have continued on, if not for the request of my coach, I would average a minimum 27, 28 uh, by third year, probably something similar, if not more, my fourth, fifth, sixth, seven years. Now I'm still first team all pro. Now I'm still, you know, at the worst second team all pro for a good five, six, seven years in a row. That becomes Hall of Fame worthy. And so mm-hmm. for me, I feel like, you know, I, I shouldn't be penalized for being a team guy, you know, going along with a request that my coach made. And that's why you look at my numbers and there's that major kind of drop-off between the second and third year. And um, and then and, and so that's the explanation that I, that I have for that. And, again, I just did what my coach asked me to do. That's selfless. And you average – your single goal percentage was 54.4. Uh, percent that year. This be ready right, exactly. So, <laughs> and, but the, and again, that's pre-analytic. So now an analytic guy to, in today's game would say to Don Nelson, that doesn't make any sense. Here's a guy that can, can score 55% of his field goals. He should be shooting more than these other guys who are not shooting three-pointers. Who are, everybody's shooting two-pointers around that time. But he should be shooting more than these guys shooting 45 46 47%. But you know the, the analytics uh, wasn't wasn't around, and uh, so that's just kind of how it was back in those days. But but uh, it's just interesting I, when I think about you know analytically what what would the approach be nowadays? It'd be like, hey, this guy we need to be shooting twenty twenty five times a game because he's scoring at such an efficient rate. It just makes better sense. But what I would do to, to finish that point, what I would do, I go along with the with the request during the regular season. But then when the playoffs would come and we're matched up against Philadelphia and, 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 and Dr. J or or we swept the Boston Celtics this one year and I had 33 and 12 in the, in the in game four at home against Larry Bird, that's when my scoring would pick up. But if you look at my numbers, my, my playoff averages are just 
uh, slightly, maybe a point, a point and a half better than what I averaged in the regular season. I like it. Skippy Radio on the line. It's Marvin Johnson talking about basketball, past, present, future. Uh, his number eight jersey will be retired uh, by the Milwaukee Bucks, which is a great honor. Uh, Matthew Delavadova will be the last person to wear number eight, and uh, that number is Marcus Johnson's number. Um, listen, man, you uh, were in two of my favorite movies, White Men Can't Jump and Forget Paris. That's Billy Crystal. That's Woody. That's uh, Spike. West, well, excuse West, me, Wesley Snipes. Snipes. Excuse me. Little brown skin guy, Wesley Snipes. <laughs> what is it like being on set with Billy Crystal first, and what's it like being on set with Wesley Snipes? Well, Billy Crystal was a lot of fun to work with, and 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 he was a guy that was one of our first consistent celebrity fans when I was with the Clippers, and so I, I got to know him. Uh, not not well. We didn't hang out together or anything like that, but he was a fan. He was there. He was supportive through some really, really tough times, and I'd always appreciated that. And, and he um, was playing a referee in that movie, Forget Paris, and, and it was just a lot of fun to be around him and, 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 and to work with him. But the real fun was White Men Can't Jump and, and, and uh, Wesley Snipes and Winnie Harrelson and and that whole crew, I mean, that, the way that movie came about, I mean, I was working with some guys on a student film for a dude by the name of Andrew Wagner based on the life of Raymond Lewis, a great, great uh, playground legend out of Los Angeles. And so this movie was called The Last Days of Hope and Time, The Temptations. Lewis Price, who's actually an outstanding basketball player, sang with The Temptations, but he was playing the role of Raymond Lewis. Anyway, we were shooting it, no money, doing it for free, up in the hills of Pasadena. And uh, one of the actors, Phil Cozart, saw my acting ability. He told me about this new movie that a friend of his, Ron Shelton, who did Bull Durham, who did Blue Chips, who did a whole bunch of movies um, uh, in terms of writing and directing. But uh, Ron Shelton had written this script, and there was a part in it that he thought I'd be perfect for. And so he arranged for me to come in and read with Ron Shelton watching and read with Wesley Snipes. And so there was a, a scene where I pull a, pull a knife on the playground, pull a knife on Wesley Snipes. But I watched a movie uh, probably a, a month before that where I saw this brother do this little, little little one-handed maneuver with this straight razor blade. And so my dad was a barber. I went and got one of his razor blades, and I practiced this maneuver for about a week before I was to go in and read. So, so when I went in and read the scene with Wesley Snipes, it came time for me to pull out the blade. I reached in my pocket, I pulled out my dad's razor blade, and it's a real razor, sharp as can be, but I did this little maneuver with my hands, opened it up with one hand, brandished it, chased him around the office with it, and uh, they loved it, and they told me that it was one of the greatest auditions that they'd had for that part, but the, but, in, but when we started shooting the uh, scene for real, just make sure I didn't bring a real razor, that they had some prop razors that didn't have <laughs> didn't have a sharp edge, because then I could hurt somebody with a real razor, but, but that's how I got that role. And it was just fun. It was fun working with the, the director, Ron Shelton. We practiced every day, two hours, five days a week, uh, for six weeks before we shot one scene, just to make sure everybody was in basketball shape. And uh, Wesley Snipes couldn't do a three-man weave. And if you messed up three-man weave, the coach, Dick Baker, uh, would make you do it again. And so oh. if you got the line with Wesley, you might have to do a three-man weave ten times uh, up and down the court until he got it right, or if he ever got it right. And so whenever he would be at the front of the line, guys would 
get out of line because their shoestring was untied or because they they had to adjust their jock strap and do whatever. But nobody wanted to go with Wesley. And Wesley looked up and said, "Oh, okay, I see what you I see what you MFs are doing. Yeah, just wait, just wait. Give me give me a couple of weeks, and I, you know I'll be able to do this thing." And he was right. He picked it up after about a week and was just uh, an incredible athlete. And so he was fun to work with. Woody Harrelson was a gym rat. And he called a bogus foul on me when we were playing just kind of some, some pickup three-on-three after after the workout. And I said, come on, Woody, Woody that, was, that was a BS call. And he just got all crazy and, 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 and out of pocket with me. I, How dare you impugn my integrity? How dare you impugn my integrity? I'm like, Woody, look, I want your French out, man. I don't know what impugn means, but that was a BS call, you know. <laughs> so he just laughed, and we had a good time. But it was it was just a great, great, great time with uh, with all the people involved in that movie. Marcus Johnson on the line ready. A few more questions. Don't want to tie you up, but I, I do want to know this, man. You cover the Bucks. Um, Giannis Antetokounmpo is having a great season. First question: How long did it take before you perfected his last name? Right. Wow, uh, it wasn't that difficult. What I did, I went to the source, and so I went right to, to Giannis because I've heard so many different versions. At the Takumpo, at the and 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 so I went to him and said, "Man, look, how do you say your last name?" And he just kind of let it roll off his tongue quicker than most people say it. Say it, Takumpo, Takumpo, and so I said, okay, so it's not Anta, Anta. He's like, no, it's just Takumpo, Takumpo. And so I, you know, I went home and practiced. I had my daughter who was like seven years old at the time. I had her practice it with me, and she actually mastered it before I did, and that, that made me work even harder to, to learn how to say it right. So I, I, it did take some work. It did take some work. But the, but the interesting thing is that Jason Kidd made a comment a couple of years ago that Giannis would probably lose out on some all-star votes because people would have hard, such a hard time with his name. And my point on the air with, to my broadcast partner, Jim Paschke at the time, was that that's going to make him stand out even more because, you know, that brief freak nickname, but people are, are going to recognize that name because they can't say it. And so that's going to make his name recognition even higher with the basketball and non-basketball fans alike. And that's kind of turned out to, to, to come into fruition this year as he's leading the Eastern Conference in both that and, and the fact that he's averaging 27 to 13 rebounds a game, I think helps also. James Harden is killing the league right now. What does Giannis – do you think that Giannis playing in the smaller market hurts him and, and people realizing how great he is? And do you think that he has a chance of beating out Harden for the MVP? He does. And a lot depends. And I've always been one, and I know it's not going to happen in the foreseeable future, but with, with computerized voting the way it is now, the instantaneousness of, of, of that information being accessible – to me, I you know I think the MVP should be voted on after the playoffs, and I know it's a regular season award and all that. But how do you know who's the most valuable player? Like you got a LeBron James a few years back who rested during the regular season, cranked it up during the playoffs, took his team to an NBA championship. They come back from a from a deficit and beat Golden State. He's dropping four. You know how is he not the MVP of the league? I don't care what somebody does in the regular season. That's not going to happen. But Giannis, you look at his numbers right now, you look at what Harden's doing. So it's got to go down between those two. Kawhi Leonard started off, started out hot, but, but Harden is, has usurped all the, all the coverage based on the numbers he's putting up. I think with Giannis, if he continues to lead this team to victory the way he's done. We did a game the other night against Memphis, second half. Memphis' energy was a lot 
more active than our energy. Giannis came out in that third quarter of that game and just dominated for the first three to five minutes, set the tone. The team followed suit. We wound up blowing blowing out the Grizzlies, what was then a tough game and a close game. Wound up beating them by 25. Well, beating hmm. them by, we were up by 25, 30 points. Might have won by 10 or so. But my point is it was because of Giannis. So Giannis continues to lead this team to 55 to 60 wins, which we're on pace to do. And right now, there's no way in the world that he can't be considered as the MVP. If he's averaging 27, 28 like he's doing now, 13 rebounds, and, 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 and the team is winning. It's just going to be tough in my mind. And, and you know as well as anybody, a lot of times the, the MVP is not based on what you do that year, but kind of your body of work the prior two years. Giannis got on people's uh, basketball map a couple of years ago. Last year, played great, you know, all pro. Now this year, people are really watching him. So the small market thing in today's NBA with all the outlets to view the game and, and, and league pass and, and TNT and NBA TV and, and ESPN, I don't think it, 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 it's nowhere near as much as a detriment as it was a few years back uh, for Giannis, and, 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 and his name recognition also is going to help him too. The third pick in the 1977 NBA draft, Marcus Johnson, did you ever think in your wildest dreams, a kid from Crenshaw High School, I first heard of Crenshaw High School on the TV show Moesha, by the way. Mm -hmm. I I, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. But did you in a million years ever think that that A, you'd make the NBA, and B, they'd be retiring your jersey? Well, I mean, in all honesty, that was something that, in terms of visualization, as a youngster, 10, 9, 10, 11, again, my dad was a coach. I was always the most valuable player at every park league, every every AAU type uh, situation I was in. Uh, I, you know, I, I used to tease James Harden. We went to the same middle school in Los Angeles, Audubon yeah. Middle School, Audubon Junior High School when I went there. And I would tease him when he was at Arizona State and I was working for Fox Sports and we were televising him games. I, I'd always call him the second best player to ever come out of Audubon. But I think he may have <laughs> he may have turned that around. He may be number one, and I'm number two right now. But that's okay. Uh, but 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 the point is is that that dream was always there, uh, and I got obsessive compulsive about working towards achieving that dream. Once I got to ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, you know, I worked my behind off. Uh, UCLA UCLA uh, worked my tail off. Uh, there's a story about me at UCLA that one of the assistant coaches, Craig Eppelman, he tells about coming to UCLA and seeing me on the track at 8 o'clock in the morning, seeing me in the gym at 10 o'clock, seeing me running full court with a lot of uh, other pros up there. This is when I was in college, around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He's leaving to go home from, from work at 5 p.m. I'm in college of being shooting jumpers by myself. And then later that night, he was at a park in this area called Mar Vista, Los Angeles. It's 9 o'clock. It's dark. It's outdoor court. He sees this shadowy figure. That same day, shooting jump shots, he walks over. He's like, that can't be Marcus. It looks like Marcus. He's like, dang, that is Marcus. He's like, what are you doing out here? And I'm like, yeah, working on my jump shot. So, I mean, I'm just, that's just an example. That didn't happen every day. But but that's the kind of drive that I had as as a player to, to, to get into the league and to play well in the league. And, and so um, – you know, to, 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 I felt like I could be successful to get to the point that I got to to make five all-star teams and, and to do some of the things that I did, first team all pro and all that, one of the top five, ten players in the world. 
for a number of years. You know, in all honesty, did I know it was going to get to that level? Probably not, but um, I, I didn't put limitations on myself. So it's just like I'm not shocked because that's what I kind of expected of myself based on the amount of work that I put into it. Last question. You were the first person to win the John Wooden Award. Um, what did he mean to you? What's the best piece of advice that he ever gave you? Well, look, you know, Coach Wooden was, was just such a joy to be around. And, and um, you know, my first year, I'm with the Bill Walton, Jamal Wilkes, Walton gang. They had lost the game in two years. They were undefeated 30-0, uh, 30-0. Uh, we lose to Notre Dame, and they break our 88-game win streak. I start the next week in our rematch game against Notre Dame as a 17-year-old freshman. And so um, UCLA, John Wooden, were just so um, valuable in terms of my development as a basketball player and as a person. Now, at the time, I'm 18, 19 years old. I don't want to hear about pyramid of success or, or life lessons and all that. I just want to play basketball, chase girls, you know, <laughs> drink some beer and, and do whatever else and have a good time in college. It wasn't until later in life when I went through some adversity, some serious adversity, career-ending injury, the loss of a son in a drowning accident, that, 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 that some of the stuff that Coach Wooden talked to us about, about character and, 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 and being more important than reputation and a lot of other things that he talked about, it and, and, and uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And so preparation has always been a huge thing with me. And I, I thought about it in hindsight 10 years after I left. And he, and he always said he, he would measure the success that he had on an individual, not when he was at UCLA as a player, but 10, 12 years down the road, what, we, what, what, what was he doing with his life? And that's when a lot of the stuff that he talked to me about I kind of kicked in. So, um, I, you know, I, Coach Wooden is, is just a person that, 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 that I, I revere. He came into my life uh, at, at a great time, and, and, and we, we, you know, we had a lot of success together. And to be the first winner of the John Wooden Award, when they said that, that they were going to have a, an award in his name, I was going to go pro that year. And that was one of the reasons, 1976-77, I decided to come back to uh, UCLA and finish out my senior year so that I'd have an opportunity to be the first winner of the John Wooden Award. And that came, uh, that, that, that became a reality. And that's one of my proudest accomplishments is to be associated with that award because of the greatness of that man. Yes, said, Sir, congratulations on number eight. I'm guessing you were born on February 8th, but that's why you picked the number eight. Yeah, we had funny because I had number fifty-four in college. We but the drafted Kent Benson as number one in the draft. They drafted me at number three. He wore number fifty-four at Indiana, so I knew he wanted that number. I number fifty-four. I didn't choose that. It was given to me when I got to UCLA. And so when I had a chance to get a brand new number, eight has always been a lucky number. I wore number thirty-five, three plus five in high school. And so uh, when they asked me what number did I want to wear it at uh, in, in Milwaukee. I think they they, they were kind of uh, afraid that I was going to say 54, so there'd be a conflict. But I said, "No, I want number eight. And they were they were just as happy as could be. Oh yeah, that's fine. That'll work definitely. That's good. And so yeah, eight's been a lucky number for me. And uh, and uh, you know, it's going up into the rafters at five syrup form. I'll be the first first jersey to go up in the new building. So that's uh, that's nothing but a blessing and a joy. And uh, I'm just I'm just thrilled and excited and appreciative of the organization. You heard it first. Emmy Award winner, John Wooden Award winner, 
Number eight in the rafters, Marcus Johnson. Thank you for joining Scoop B Radio, my brother. All right, man. My pleasure. Thank you. Scoop B Radio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter. A health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 